This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Steve Smith. How you doing, Steve? I'm good. How are you doing? Great. And we also have Sam Basu here. How's it going, Sam? Uh, not too bad. How are you two? Excellent. So we have Sam and Steve on the show today to discuss some software craftsmanship. Uh, before we get started, Steve, you want to give us a quick introduction of uh, who you are, where you work, kind of what you've been up to? Sure. So my name is Steve Smith. I've been building software for about 20 years now professionally, and I'm very passionate about trying to help teams build software better so it's easier for them to maintain, uh, has less technical debt, fewer bugs, and they can make changes to it as customer demands change, which they always do. Um, I've got a few courses on Pluralsight that talk about some of these things, including design patterns and domain-driven design. So check those out if you're a Pluralsight subscriber. And I like to uh, speak at conferences and local user groups about these topics as well. I'm also something of an entrepreneur. I've uh, founded a couple of companies with my wife, Michelle, uh, and, and gone on to sell most of them. Um, and currently, I'm pretty much independent doing the training and mentoring for, for teams that need it. Excellent. And Sam, uh, why don't you give us a quick intro? You've been on the show before, but I'm sure not every listener out there has uh, heard about you before. Yep, sure thing. So I'm uh, Ed's partner in crime, uh, also a developer advocate at uh, Telerik slash Progress now. And um, before we start, actually, a quick uh, disclosure. I used to work with uh, Steve and his team, and uh, always been a big fan of your work, Steve. And I think uh, Steve and his wife, Michelle, uh, you two have a passion for getting some of the best uh, developers uh, together in the Cleveland Akron area, and you have built some amazing products. So glad to have you on the show. Thanks. So what's a good way to get started uh, on this topic, guys? Um, should we start with uh, what is software craftsmanship in general? Let's just kick it off there. Sure. So, you know, I think I can try and answer that if you like. The uh, there's there's sort of a software craftsmanship movement at the moment that uh, Uncle Bob Martin has largely uh, been responsible for, I think, although it's it's certainly larger than him, uh, and has been going on for a few years. And I think the idea behind it was that a lot of the agile uh, practices and uh, hype and marketing of late has focused more on the project management side of things and has sort of left the the need for the code itself to be well crafted out of the out of the conversation. And so when we talk about software craftsmanship, it's mainly uh, getting back to the practices and the patterns and the principles that we can follow as software developers to build high quality, high internal quality software. Um, as internal being differentiated from external quality because the, the customer only sees the, the user interface typically. They don't necessarily know whether the code behind it um, is something that would be easy to maintain or, or something that's just held together with duct tape. So we're talking about writing quality code that our coworkers or the person that's picking up the project after us uh, might need to maintain, and uh, we, wanna, we want that code to be as easy as possible for newcomers to get on board with and either continue to write or update. Exactly. Yeah, and, we want to 
make sure that the software lives up to its name, right? It's, it's, it's called software as opposed to hardware because it's supposed to be malleable and, and easy to change. Um, but of course, legacy software often is far from that. And when we have problems uh, with keeping maintainable code, we often refer to that as technical debt. Um, so what are what are some different types of technical debt we might be able to identify? Well, technical debt is sort of a metaphor for um, shortcuts and, and hacks and, and just, you know, design shortcomings in your code. Uh, and some of them are going to be unavoidable, uh, you know, because we can't we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the future is going to hold or what the requirements are going to be uh, at some point in the future. But some of them are a conscious decision where because of uh, time constraints or perhaps because we didn't know of a certain technique when we when we first wrote the code, uh, we chose a, a design that that wasn't optimal. Um, and, you know, that sometimes that's a conscious decision. We, we said, hey, I know I ought to do it this other way, but the deadline is, is coming up. So I'm just going to hack it this 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 quick and easy way that isn't isn't as good, but we'll get it out the door today. Um, and other times it's it's unintentional. And we can address the, the types of technical debt in different ways. Uh, sometimes it makes sense to incur technical debt, just like it makes sense for a business to incur actual financial debt um, because of the, the benefits it can, can give you in terms of being able to, to magnify the, uh, the, your efforts. Um, however, when you're in inadvertently adding technical debt, and you could just as easily have written the code in a way that, that didn't add any technical debt at all, um, that's just a waste. And and to take the metaphor one step further for those that aren't familiar with it, the problem with technical debt is that you don't just have the debt to pay back, it also has interest. And the interest rate on your technical debt for your code uh, can can sometimes be very high. It's it's you know hard to identify it as like a number with this metaphor, of course. But uh, the the issue is that every time you have to work around a design shortcoming. Um, you're paying that interest in the form of that extra time that you're having to take to, to work around those those shortcuts. Um, and the more of those there are, the, the harder that gets to be until it, it takes as long to work around the issues as it does to actually add the feature or fix the bug that you're trying to actually do. And I can see this how uh, technical debt becomes difficult to manage if you're a business owner because, like you said, Steve, it's not um, all, always external facing and you're trying to improve the quality of your software without actually delivering features or uh, uh, bugs that you're trying to fix. So it's sometimes maybe difficult to justify. But at, at what point do you think like we internally as software developers should raise our hand to say we need to do something uh, right away before things get really bad? Well. I, I like to think that developers generally shouldn't have to ask for permission to practice just simple good hygiene on their code. And, and that includes things like, you know, following basic standards, checking in and out of source control appropriately, making sure that, uh, you know, th things aren't just a total mess as, as far as how they're organized. Uh, and then when it comes to what we would consider technical debt, uh, if you follow sort of the Boy Scout rule with, with how you do your work, um, meaning that you're going to leave your code better than you found it. So you're not trying to clean up the code entirely, you know, and spend a day or a week or a month uh, on just trying to clean up technical debt. But for this one bug that you're fixing, if in the course of fixing that bug you notice there's, you know, an issue in the class that, that you're in, 
that you can easily fix right there, you know, do it. Yeah, it's it's not exactly the thing that you were there to fix, but you're you've already got it opened up. You can see the problem. You know, make that change to improve the design as you're doing other work. Uh, and there's no reason to, you know, seek out permission from from the customer or from the manager there. That's something that you know we as professionals should use our judgment and do because it's to the benefit of the long-term viability of the project. That's like, uh, you know, the, the chef having to ask permission to wash his hands before, you know, making each meal or, or, or the, the doctor having to do the same thing before surgery. You know, that, that's just included as something you expect. That makes sense. So, I mean, we as professionals should take ownership of what we maintain, and as and when we get a chance, it doesn't need to be uh, extra time or uh, cycles that we keep aside, but just keep doing it continuously. Exactly. And what are now, some, uh, sorry, go on, Ed. What are some of the ways that we can identify when something's going awry? Like when, when can we really just look at our code and go, oh, this is going bad really quick. We need to kind of start over or refactor or do something else? Well, when you're working on the code base as a developer, you know, there's there's times when it's it's easy and there's times when it's hard and frustrating. Um, and, and for most of us, if we've ever worked on a Greenfield project, you know, most of the time, especially if it's with a technology we're familiar with, that's like the best thing ever because there's no constraints, there's no legacy technical debt or anything. You know, the customer says, hey, I want it to do this, and real quick, you code it up and it does that. You know, you, you decide maybe you want to add some unit tests. Oh, well, you can add unit tests because this thing's not coupled to three different legacy systems that are impossible to test. Um, when you've got a system that's been around for a while, it can be a lot more difficult. And that, that change, that, that way you feel about it or the actual extra effort it takes for you to do anything, that's how you can tell. That's, that's the effort um, that, that we're talking about. And so if you notice that it's not easy for you to add features or fix bugs or, or things like that, um, you could likely point to that as being this technical debt that's the issue and, and try and find ways that you can fix it. Now, in terms of identifying, you know, specific things in your code that you might want to address, there's there's a bunch of principles you can follow. Um, the solid principle principles are good. The uh, don't repeat yourself principle is, is an excellent one where if you saw, see repetition in your code, uh, you know, the same if block all over the place, the same switch statement all over the place, um, those are things that are relatively low-hanging fruit to try and consolidate. And then there's, you know, certain static metrics you can take on your code uh, using Visual Studio or using uh, a tool like Endepend that will let you see, uh, you know, certain certain heuristics about how the, the code is broken down. Well, how many lines of code are in different methods? What's the cyclomatic complexity of different methods? And if you just kind of rank order some of those things, you'll be able to identify the the most complex uh, or most hairy parts of the code base and maybe focus your attention there um, when you do have, you know, an extra bit of time and you want to just go try and clean things up uh, outside of the course of fixing bugs and adding features, you know, that's a good way for you to see where the, where the problem spots are. So there's some interesting metrics you talked about there, like cyclomatic complexity. What is that? Sure. Cyclomatic complexity is a, a metric that you can calculate for any um, block of code, and it's not language specific. And basically, it's a number uh, that corresponds to how many unique paths 
pathways through the code execution could take. Um, so if you have a, a simple method that just returns a value, there's only one way that the, the program can run through that method, so it would have a cyclomatic complexity of one. Um, if you've got that same method and it says, well, if you know something is true, return one, else return two, you know, now it has two possible ways of ex exiting that method, so its complexity would be two. Um, you, there's there's simple tools, or not simple, but there's there's uh, tools that you can use like Visual Studio, like Endepen, um, and others that will calculate this for a given class or method um, and give you back a number. And that number, the higher it gets, the more complex that method is. Uh, generally, complexity, although you can calculate it for classes, it, it really only makes sense to me at the method level. And so for a given method, you want to keep your complexity as low as possible, but generally the threshold that, that I use, which is also uh, recommended on, on Wikipedia for this, this same topic, is the 10 is a reasonable number to try and stay under. Uh, and, and if you look at some things that have cyclomatic complexities of much greater than 10, you can quickly see that they, they start to get kind of out of control in terms of how many pathways through the code there are. Yeah, that could be a sign of, you know, like your your whole application is in one method. <laughs> you're you're not um, using that single responsibility uh, principle there where you have one method doing many, many, many things in your project. Um, do you have any, like, uh, nightmare stories where you've picked up, like, a legacy project and seen some gigantic cyclomatic complexity number? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um... When I when I speak at conferences, I have some screenshots that show the you know sort of the the methods broken down, and I've got you know one that's like cyclomatic complexity of like 372 or something crazy high um, because it's like a 3,000 line method, um, and sometimes a high cyclomatic complexity is acceptable if it's not like your code. Like you might have uh, some code gen that's running that's doing something like you know doing a a file import. And so the, the code isn't isn't your code. It's generated code, and it it was generated from a file to you know create a mapping from this file to another file. And so it's all kinds of if statements or whatever that that say you know if it's this you know use this element, otherwise use this other element. Um, but since it's generated code, you can pretty well ignore it as long as it's working. Um, now, if you're running some tools like Visual Studio, they won't let you exclude those easily. Uh, but if you use a tool like like Independ, which I'm a fan of. Um, you can actually use link statements to create rules that are specific to your project. Uh, and one of those things that you can do is you can identify which code is yours and which code is generated based on its namespace or its name or whatever you want to use. Um, and then when you go to run these rules to say, hey, show me all of my methods that have a complexity that's, that's higher than I would like, uh, it'll only show you the ones that, that you care about, not the, not the ones you don't. Now you've mentioned Endepend a few times. Is that a tool that is open source, or is it a paid product? Uh, where can we find out more about it? It's it? A, yeah, it's a paid product. I think it's Endepend.com. Uh, um, I've got a license to it as an MVP from uh, from Microsoft. They're nice enough to to let MVPs have a a free evaluation license of it. Um, but it's a it's a nice tool. I've recommended it to clients. And uh, it built, it ties into Visual Studio, or it runs standalone. You can run it as part of your build server if you're using TeamCity or, or uh, TFS or, or whatever your your build server might be. And with with any of these, overall, the go ahead, sorry, sorry. Ed. 
So I think overall, uh, the tooling has actually come a long way, which helps us developers do these things right. Uh, we know about the Roslyn compiler platform, and I think uh, tools like uh, JustCode that we have, I mean, we are tapping into exactly how the C-sharp compiler looks at your code and being able to give you these analytics and metrics of uh, how your overall code base looks like. Yeah, I think JustCode supports uh, showing you the cyclomatic complexity of a method right right in Visual Studio, um, if I remember correctly. Yep. And then there's other tools mm -hmm. that do that as well. So, you know, things like that definitely help um, as you're working on the code base to see where where the problems might lie, or or maybe you just didn't realize that something was getting out of hand, and and it, you know, these these things that are sort of rule based um, can let you know when when things are getting a little bit, you know, beyond what you should accept. Sure. So let's talk about um, refactoring, Steve. I know um, you're a big fan of it, and it's something we should uh, maybe try doing, continuing. But I've also heard you talk about like pain-driven development. So what's kind of a balance? I mean, when do you refactor? What are some of your horror stories, if any? Sure. So I mentioned earlier on that I think refactoring um, should generally be done as you're delivering value to the customer. There's a story I tell at some of my conference talks where imagine that you've got a, a restaurant you like to go to, and one day you go there and they'd say they're closed because they had to spend a week cleaning up the kitchen because it was such a mess. You're going to be disappointed, and you're probably going to be a little worried about what kind of operation they have in the kitchen if they let it get so messy that they had to take a whole week off to clean it. Um, if you go to your customer or your boss and you say, hey, for this sprint, I don't think we can deliver any new features or, or you know, fix any bugs. We just need to try and clean up the code. You know, what kind of message is that sending to your customers? Uh, it's probably not, not a good one. So a better solution is to, to try and refactor as you are working on uh, features or bugs and, you know, follow the Boy Scout rule that I mentioned. Look for places in the course of what you're actually trying to accomplish where some refactoring would improve the design and make it easier for you to do what you're doing. Uh, essentially, you know, some little design flaw that, that you would otherwise have to work around, instead of working around it this time, fix it. Um, and that's where you use the, the refactoring technique. Sometimes you're not sure how to refactor something or you're not sure what things need to be refactored. Um, you know, with, with design patterns, we have names for a lot of these patterns that help us as developers talk about things. Um, in refactoring, we have what are called code smells. And there's, there's a lot of different identified code smells. I talk about a ton of them in my refactoring fundamentals course on Pluralsight. But these are things like uh, primitive obsession, where you, you see in your code that you're using a primitive value for, for some, something that, that isn't just that thing. Um, for instance, I'm going to use a, a string to represent a zip code. And now everywhere I refer to that variable that happens to be a string that I really want to be a zip code, I might have to do some validation to make sure that it's got the correct length or it follows this regular expression pattern or whatever. If I, instead of using a primitive for that, if I used a zip code type, that all that validation could happen when I create the thing or when I change it. Uh, and anywhere else in my program, I can just to be trusting that, that it's a valid zip code because I can't create one without going through that validation process. You know, that's one example. And then you mentioned pain-driven development. That's a, a term I use for uh, making sure that you don't go kind of crazy gold-plating your code or, or trying to follow all the, the principles at once and fix all the code smells at once. 
you know, basically the, these things are more guidelines than, than laws or rules. And if it's not causing you any pain in the course of fixing a bug or, or adding a feature or delivering customer value, don't worry about them. It's only when it's causing you pain, it's slowing you down, it's making your job harder that you want to take these things into account and apply these, these principles and practices. Right. So, uh, I mean, you talked a little bit about um, type safety uh, when you were giving us that example. Um, and those of us who come from a heavy .NET background might already be very comfortable with the tools and languages that we have at our disposal. But we have also seen how the modern web works and how the success of JavaScript is influencing just about everything, uh, ASP.NET to, uh, to mobile. Um, so how do you uh, work with uh, sort of dynamic languages like JavaScript, or do you kind of fall back to TypeScript? Uh, what's your take? I haven't used TypeScript much. Um... Mostly because uh, my my background is primarily on the Microsoft side and mostly on the server side with with ASP.NET and C Sharp. When I do work with JavaScript, I'm very much a fan of using uh, a view model and binding um, approach as opposed to you know using just straight DOM access or or DOM plus jQuery where you're you know imperatively changing everything. Mm -hmm. And what I like most about the fact that most of the, most modern frameworks, whether it's Knockout or Angular or what have you. Um, are, are using that, that binding approach, Kendo UI does as well, uh, where you've got a view model that the UI elements bind to, that gives you the same kind of uh, ability to, to manage the interactions and the behavior of, of the model that the uh, using a type for a zip code does instead of using a string. You know, it's the, the exact same idea is, is that, you know, instead of me being able to just you know, change uh, the text of a button or something with a, with a uh, a bit of JavaScript anywhere using jQuery. Now I'm going to bind that value to something and have certain rules that are only in one location that that uh, control its state um, in a in a consistent way for that whole application or that whole page. Uh, and and that model uh, based design is is important whether it's client side code or or server side code. Right. And I think, I mean, what all of these modern um, frameworks get us is that little separation of concerns. So it's slightly easier to test things and uh, stay on top of uh, models or view models with exact, uh, exactly a single responsibility that you want them to do. Right. And being able to kind of encapsulate behavior and, and business rules or, or UI rules um, separate from the user interface itself or, or the data layer or things like that, that, that separation of concerns makes it easier for you to test your rules in isolation from their, their implementation at runtime. Okay, guys, I think we talked about some really great points today. Uh, we talked about uh, separation of concerns, uh, encapsulation. Uh, you guys were talking about some good practices with JavaScript. So I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up and we'll put some great links in the show notes to Steve's resources. He has some great Pluralsight courses out there. Uh, so thanks a lot, Sam and Steve, and we'll definitely have you guys back on the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot, Steve. I think it was a great uh, conversation. Great to have you on the show. I think at the end of the day, all of this comes back to software craftsmanship, like you described, and really being passionate about our craft, caring for the code we write, caring for uh, maintenance of the code bases over time. And I think if we are all passionate about uh, what we write and if we follow some principles, I think we all end up with happier code bases and happier customers, and it's, uh, it makes life easier for us as well. Excellent point, Sam. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Thanks.